I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Limited Upside live chat on Spotify Greenwood. I'm still getting used to that. Did I just say Spotify Greenwood? Spotify Green Room. <laughs> Spotify Green Room. I'm still getting used to this. Uh, I'm Mike Prada. Ben Epstein is on the other line. Ben, hello. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually really happy today. Uh, last night was a good night for basketball, I thought. And I mean, no disrespect to the Los Angeles Clippers uh, or anyone who lost out in the lottery, but I felt like last night was like a nice, wholesome night of basketball uh, with Phoenix winning, with Detroit, a team that, you know, does not have a long history of getting lucky, winning the lottery, uh, with some of the other stuff going on. I'm happy. I'm in a good mood. I I know you're a 76ers fan, so I, I made sure to not engage with you too much on Sunday and give you some space. How are you feeling now? I'm all right. Yeah, you were very respectable or respectful, I should say. Um, I feel like I'm a I'm like a pivot point for anybody who's ever watched the NBA and has a thought about the Sixers. So I got dozens and dozens of text messages that I responded to a few of, and the rest I just disregarded because i didn't have any good answer you know mm-hmm. at the time i still don't i think there's um similar to any like uh, political candidate who loses there's a post-mortem to be done uh, as to what what went wrong what you could have done better and in this sixers um instance it's, it's a more complicated one than most teams so I'm not going to – I didn't have any immediate hot takes. I'm not some fucking asshole who's just like, yeah, trade, <laughs> trade Ben at his lowest and, uh, you know, blow it all up, blah, blah. Because I think, like, you have to be realistic about mm. about okay. a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know it would have seemed like a slam dunk to have you on right away and yeah. to just let you vent. But I decided to pass up that opportunity, you know, even though it would have been it was right in front of there. You know, so I just said, pass it off, wait a couple days, and settle for one free throw. Uh, so that's what we've decided to do. Yeah, no, I, we don't even. I don't even want to talk about the Sixers. Well, we can okay touch. We can touch on them later on, but let's let's start with the teams that are currently playing. The excitement from from last night's game, um, which which was a great game. There have been so oh, many legitimately great, great games in these playoffs, specifically the last like week. And last night may have been the best of them. So, you know, I want to get your initial thoughts. Um, I know, Mike, you said a, a few weeks back, if not a month back now, that you were pulling for a Suns-Bucks final. You Almost you probably, there. <laughs> probably are 
are looking pretty good. Um, yeah, tell me about last night's game, man. What, what are your takeaways? Yeah, almost there, man. Almost there with the Suns Bucks final. Uh, the nerd dream. Uh, look, I don't know about you. I just I love this Phoenix Suns team. I, just, I love them. I love them. I think they they're so much fun to watch. They're so much fun the way they've come together. The way that they play is just sort of very much up my alley of like kind of building up a lot of little things and it becomes a big thing. They're easy to root for. I love that, you know, they haven't won a title. They've been in the wilderness for a while. Love the work Monty Williams has done. Love Chris Paul's impact. There's almost nothing not to like about this team. And I don't know about you, but I, I found myself pulling for them all season and I found myself pulling for them the last few weeks even more i never i didn't think they had enough to win the title but right now you kind of have to consider them the favorite yeah i mean going up 2-0 without chris paul is quite the statement uh what are they on a, a nine game mm-hmm. nine game, game winning, nine nine game game winning streak. streak that's insane to do um you know we i mentioned last night when we were texting back and forth but you know the the one common thread here is they've been the best team in the nba for a, a year now you know, essentially since the bubble about about a year, whatever, whenever the bubble came back, they hmm. they made a huge run without Chris Paul. At that point, they set the bar at we can contend for a title if we get a guy like Chris Paul. Irony being that now they have Chris Paul and he's unable to play in, in the Western Conference Finals. And they've just carried that same momentum. Now, was Cameron Payne the same type of player last year? That he is now? Uh, no. <laughs> oh, my God, no. Cameron was out of the league. Out of the league. He wasn't even an NBA-level player, and now he's a legitimate threat to lead a team to a yeah. to the NBA Finals. Uh, Aiton's leap has been, even within the playoffs of this year, Aiton's leap has been astronomical and, I think, uh, very telling for the success of the team. And, and Monty, I mean, I know you – were an advocate of Monty being the coach of the year that you thought it was kind of a clear cut one too, that you were really yeah. surprised that he didn't win it. I think this validation of the run he's on, I mean, look, drawing up a game winning play, keeping a, a really, uh, the Suns are an interestingly built team. They have a really good mix of veterans and young players and emerging stars, emerging superstars in Booker's case. Uh, and Monty does an incredible job of balancing all of that kind of age uh, uh, not discrepancy, but um, you know, a team that is playing what wise beyond their years. Yeah, it's really awesome to see. Yeah, I, I thought that it was a slam dunk that he should have won Coach of the Year. I just thought, you know, too much of the credit that he probably should have been given to him was given to Chris Paul, whereas Tom Thibodeau, where he won, he's sort of this huge cult of personality that is overwhelms anyone else, and that's not really Monty Williams' style, and I think that that hurt him. You know, the, the concept of credit is a really interesting thing, I think, when we're talking about the Suns, right? Who deserves credit for this is sort of a question that I think, you know, if you're looking for, like, why the Suns have kind of snuck up on people and why they are now so lovable and they're in this position, to me, one of the big challenges you run into is sort of the challenge by design, which is who's who deserves credit for this? And one of the reasons I love the Suns, maybe the reason I love the Suns, is that in, I mean, this. I'm about to get real deep here. You ready? About to get real deep. You ready? One of the things in, that you kind of learn in life as you get older is that, like, there is never one person or one thing or one factor that gets you to where you're at at any point in life, right? It's there's something about the combination of factors. You know, they always say to, to raise a kid, you need a village, uh, and this 
it, you reach a point, I think, if you really like kind of are after the salvation or what you really want, you reach a point where you shouldn't know who to, who to credit for your circumstances, or at least you shouldn't be able to identify one key factor for that credit. There is something about the combination of all these things coming together, a lot of little victories adding up, a lot of whatever. And I don't think that's really how we talk about basketball enough. I think we're just always searching for who's to blame credit. Even if we know that there are more factors, then we're ranking them. Like who's most to blame? Who's most credit? What sort of thing is most caused someone to get here? And I think it's telling that the team that's emerged this season is one where where can you really disentangle Chris Paul from that team? But can you really disentangle Monty Williams from all the other things that have happened? Can you disentangle Devin Booker? And I just think that in trying to find like who's the guy or who are the guys that are most responsible for this, whether it's CP3, Booker, Monty, James Jones, Aiton, Bridges, all campaign, all of it, you sort of lose sight of the fact that like at the, when things are really working the way they're supposed to in life and on a basketball team, you shouldn't be able to tell who deserves credit. It kind of just all seeps through. And to me, that's just like a beautiful thing to see. And that's why I just love this team so much. It's interesting you say that because the NBA is a sport, you know, with obviously five on five, it's easy to see on a very, uh, um, you know, visceral level, who's, who's dominating, you know, the same names that have appeared on every championship trophy for uh you know 20 years now Shaquille O'Neal and Tim Duncan and LeBron James and Kobe Bryant you know and you go down the list there's like five common threads either a team beat Shaq or beat Tim Duncan or they won it or same thing goes for LeBron which could absolutely happen this year if Phoenix ends up winning the title they will have beaten LeBron and and gone to the title but it's easy to to kind of show who the dominant factors are in a game where you know look the last year's title was won by the team that had the two best players and probably no other players in the top seven in that series or something to that effect. Mm, um, yeah. So it's, you know, top heavy player driven league, which kind of flies in the face of, of what you're saying. But I agree with you, you know, and the Suns are a great combination of like using all of their contracts the right way, not having a dead weight mid-level exception player or using their trade uh, exception on a guy who didn't help them whatsoever uh, for what they need. I mean, I think of Montrez Harrell sitting on the bench for the Lakers, not doing anything. You know, as they desperately needed some kind of, uh, you know, actual power forward stretch player to, mm-hmm. to help LeBron. Um, and you see the Suns and it's like, you know, the, the Crowder addition was really important. Um, whether or not he shot poorly for two games of the playoffs or not, you know, the Crowder addition was, was very important. They get great minutes from whether he's playing well or not. Dario Saric always plays very hard. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'm a big he Dario played, fan. He played great last night. He and he played really well. Yeah, big time for them. Bad game one, good game two. Um, and yeah, I mean, guys like giving pain that opportunity. I'm sure, I mean, this might be anecdotal um, or could be, or should, this might be real, but he, he lives with Chris Paul. Is that what I understand? Does he? he? I, I, be- I believe I heard that, that he quite literally lives with, with Chris Paul. And you see Does this like really? in other sports. I huh. could be wrong, but I've definitely heard that on one of the telecasts that he's just been like living with him and essentially absorbing him, uh, as, you know, what he can teach him. Um, and so there's that, um, guys like Booker who, who probably have been better than the credit that was given because the NBA narrative of like, you know, fake stats or fluff stats on a, 
good stats, bad team or losing culture, blah, 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 all that bullshit that is completely made up. It is a way to talk about sports. That's not well, based in anything. I don't, I don't think it's completely made up. I think maybe not bad stats, good team, but absolutely the culture part is. These are fuck. I do not believe in any way, shape, or form about the culture of losing affecting people, uh, affecting teams' ability well, to become winners. I just, I well, just he, don't. And I, don't, I, yeah, I don't think there's I mean, any I data think, to prove that either. I think it's, to me, it's more like sort of this problem. And again, I know we're getting deep with all this stuff, but to me, it's this problem of sort of assuming that the current state of affairs will always be the future state of affairs with the team, right? And I think we run into this challenge where, like, the best we are we the what we remember most is what's already happened, and there is sort of this assumption that it's most likely to happen again, particularly if it's happened a lot of different times. And like Phoenix, just for the longest time, was a wasteland, and Booker was sort of to some degree like that. Um, but people are not destined to be like that forever. You know, even something as fundamental as like building a team around like one or two dominant players and a bunch of guys who are not as empowered, you know, that may have worked in the past, but there's no guarantee it works in the future. And so I think sometimes I think we're just very, we have a lot of trouble, I think, adjusting to changing circumstances and to accepting that people and teams and combinations and whatever, they can grow, they can change, they can be better versions of themselves. Um, and that's why I think Monty Williams deserves so much more credit, because ultimately, it isn't all him that has brought the sounds to this point. It can't be all him. But I think that his job, more so than anyone else's in the organization, is to get the most, get people to be their best selves get the most people to be the best versions of themselves and to win. And when you look at the Suns team, you look at all the players involved. I mean, it's not all Monty Williams. That campaign has emerged that Tory Craig kind of has found a role that Aiton has grown from bust to this sort of now it's like, well, he's, he's going to be a multi-time all-star that bridges has become the player he's been that Booker frankly has become more, of a winning player or whatever that means that all, all these things have happened for reasons that are not entirely Monty Williams, but it's Monty Williams's job to nurture that improvement in yeah. people and players. And to me, that's like a real sign of coaching more so than like, Hey, I'm installing my way and you're all going to be really good at running it my way. Like to me, that's the real magic of coaching is like getting people to be better versions of themselves. And like, that's the story of the Suns team. Like they are just all the best versions of what they could be. It's just beautiful to watch. A good team. <laughs> yeah. But it's not just that it's a good team. I mean, there are good teams that have players who are not the best versions of themselves, who are not like, I, I think it's interesting that the Suns are the team that's playing their deep rotation. That's playing the most guys. Whereas you look at like, say for example, the Milwaukee Brooklyn series, like, that was just an exercise in, like, the coaches only trusting fewer and fewer and fewer and fewer players mm -hmm. as the series went on. And I don't know if, like, that's because they didn't – like, in the Nets case, it certainly wasn't because they hadn't built that trust in the regular season. Like, those guys had plenty of chances to get experience. But, you know, for whatever – but there's something about just – at a certain point, like, you have to trust the work you've done in building those guys up. And – I think the Suns are the one team 
you know, again, it's so easy to like narrow your circle and to only rely on certain guys and to kind of run your stuff through the best players and to sort of minimize like uncertainties in that respect to kind of close ranks. And the Suns have done, and at no point this season have the Suns ever said to themselves, like, we, we, we're going to close ranks. We're not going to involve everyone in the group. You know, this set of circumstances, this thing that happened to us, like we're, we're doomed now. We're, you know, we, we can't have guys who step out. They, they embraced facing the Lakers. You know, yeah. they embraced that whole thing. They've embraced the absence of Chris Paul. And so to me, like, that is a really tough thing to do. That is much harder to do than what you saw in the Nets Bucks series, which is like, look, we're just going to, like, play our best guys the most. Uh, and that's, I think, a really cool thing that, you know, in a season where everyone else has been had so much uncertainty, I think that has more value than it usually does. So to me, it's just, I mean, like, it's just beautiful to watch that play out in real time. You can see it in, in you know, even the three that Bridges missed in the corner, which came before the eventual uh, game-winning inbounds play. But that was a play that, you know, Booker got an immediate double sent out to him and he felt comfortable passing it off. I think it was to maybe then to, to Jay Crowder, yeah. You know, right there, you're you're showing that you're okay with any one of those guys taking a very important shot. And then yeah. on the final play, your elite wing scorer, uh, one of the you know the go-to players of the of the entire playoffs, sets a back screen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's there's a buy-in component that was shown, you know, again throughout the series, throughout the playoffs in general, even throughout just the first you know the last minute of the game. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great place. And you know, the play that I circled that I thought was really remarkable to illustrate this sort of everyone's in this together and everyone's empowered, but everyone also has like an expectation to perform. So you're not just sort of like kind of throwing people in who don't deserve it was, I think it was like three minutes left. They're in a timeout and they run what looks like to be their normal kind of high pick and roll staggered screen Spain action, which is what it's called, but it's really a decoy so that Mikhail Bridges who had, gone one for five in the game and missed every three and had frankly lost a lot of playing time that game to Cam Johnson would pop out to shoot a, to shoot a three off a curl, which he doesn't do very much. And you're in this high leverage situation. You're calling that play for Mikhail Bridges. To me, that that's remarkable that they ran that play and that it was sort of second nature for them to run that play. You know, I, I just, Imagine like how how easy it would be to be like, oh, we have to put the ball in our best players' hands. Like we have to run the play for the star. But like, no, they ran the play for Mikael Bridges. It was I just thought it was remarkable timing wise to run that play for him. So, do you see the Clippers getting back in the series? Yeah, I guess we should get down to some brass tacks here, right? So, yeah, yeah. Suns love tests is uh, let's let's talk a little bit about some of the brass tacks and and. And what's going on? What did you think? Just out of curiosity, I thought the two games so far have been very different games in the series. One was sort of high scoring, small lineups, and then the Clippers decide that they want to play big most of the time, which I think a lot of people were surprised by. But they sort of were able to grind the game out, grind it down, and probably should have won it if not for that one amazing play and a bunch of reviews that we're not going to talk about. What do you What do you think about sort of the way this series has felt? You know, do you do you think that like the Clippers are searching too much? Uh, 
for an answer? Or do you think that they they are just playing a bunch of cards? Like what what, yeah. what were you surprised that they went with that sort of strategy in game two? Well, I so the answer is not surprised. I think I think what Tyler is doing is trying to modify completely his his team uh, in the Western Conference Finals. You know, there's no real parallel between playing the Jazz and going five out. You know, like playing against a guy like Gobert, who you have to you know, specifically scheme against um, for your offense, and then flipping the script to the Suns, who play great team defense, whose big is a little bit more nimble, but ultimately it allows for you to play Zubak more, and that's either good nor I can't tell you if that's good or bad yet. Um, he had a great block at the end of the game, but for the most part, I feel like it's it's a net negative um mm. to have it's it, this is the thing i don't know what tyloo is going to come to in game three i'm very curious what adjustments he makes because it felt like last night even though they kept everything they could have won but should have won you could argue they kept everything mm-hmm. to like three points uh to being a three-point game by hitting one three after another every time the game got to six points it didn't feel uh like a necessarily sustainable output but at the same time they could have won it probably should be one one you don't want to make too many sweeping adjustments knowing that, but you need to make sure that, and specifically, I think if you, if you look at the way that Lou has used his subs and, and kind of the way he's used his bench, like it's a, it's a tight lineup right now. And you're putting a lot of responsibility on Paul George to be at his best in the fourth. And you don't know what you're going to get from Reggie Jackson. Like Reggie Jackson, getting you 25 on efficient shooting is not the norm, but that's what no. you've got to beat the, you know, to beat the jazz. <laughs> Yeah. So I don't, I don't quite know what to, it has been the norm, which is insane. Talk about using your mid season money uh, for the best. I mean, Reggie Jackson's playing an incredible uh, contract right now. So I don't know what Tyler is going to do, man. This is more the, you know, where I'd love to ask you what you think the adjustment is, if there is an adjustment uh, in game three. Yeah. I, I, I admit that I was surprised by, uh, can you hear, am I hearing you in the background? I don't know. I, I admit that I was a little surprised by the starting lineup when it happened because it didn't really occur to me that the Clippers would actually go back big. But as the game was playing out, I could see the logic in it. And here's the thing that's a challenge, right? So you talked about the Clippers staying in with all those threes. I mean, the Suns also had a massively off shooting night. Oh, big time. From three point range. I mean, usually if you hold, what did they shoot from three? I know they, they, what was their percentage? I should go look this up. Um, in front of me, um, but let me look. I, I really should know, but it wasn't very good, uh, in the game. And yeah, this, look at me, like doing this amazing research, uh, in real time. <laughs> it's a very so well research. So six of 26, and that's yeah. not very good. Although, the 26 is, I think, a significant number in that it's not a very – that's not a lot of threes from today's game. But so what I think the Clippers – to me what the Clippers did is they took a page a little bit out of what the Lakers were doing to the Suns before Anthony Davis got injured, which was the way the Suns, like, get – got the way Booker went off in game one is that he sort of was able to get into those speed dribble handoffs and kind of – be unimpeded, and then he would just dominate in the mid-range. He could rise up on his terms. He could, you know, or get to the rim or find the open guy. Like, there's, he just sort of had too much room to, to maneuver. And I think the way Booker likes to beat you, and I think I said this, is he's sort of like a fast to slow to fast 
type of guy, which means he wants to surge into the play, stop so that he can feel you and then bump off you and make his play. Like the, that's the rhythm of how his moves work, right? When you think about some of those shots, it's like a fast speed up, slow down, get the guy in your hip, you know, be physical, surge off, bump off and like kind of pivot off. And so he's controlling the physical turns of that. When you play big, what you do is you, 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 the other key adjustment was playing Beverly. And if you play Beverly, Beverly is sort of now hitting him first. So he can't speed as easily. Then backing off really well, because he knows he's got a big in the paint to protect against, you know, backdoor or whatever. And so Booker can't necessarily hit him. And then kind of coming in to contest after the fact. So, I think you kind of needed to play a big to be able to execute that strategy. Mm-hmm. And so that I think was what the logic was. And it didn't occur to me until I saw it in action, but that's exactly how the Lakers held Booker to such a bad game in game three. It was that mm-hmm. having that same cadence and speed of action where, you know, KCP was more physical at the beginning of those cuts. Wouldn't let him just surge into them but then backed off and sort of mirrored his movements so, be, so that he could sort of funnel him into the big guy. Also important that last night to note that Booker was in foul trouble, got stitches on his face mid-game, and Beverly plays really tough, annoying defense. I mean, he, he's, he's always, in, in Pat Beverly's case, he's always going to give you 100% of what you don't want, no matter what that is, as, as the offensive player. So, you know... <laughs> yeah. You know, so a lot of factors did go into to Booker's game last night. And he did still hit a huge shot in the final. I don't know, the, hard for me to tell you what when when it happened because the final two minutes took 35 minutes of uh, actual yeah. time. And that was absurd. And we can get to that if you want. I don't love mm-hmm. bitching about it. We've done enough of this. And, and uh, you know, we're soccer fans. So VAR is a thing and celebrations are muted. And it makes me think about the history of basketball, how different things could have been. Because you just you just don't know, uh, and when you watch it yeah. in slow mo, everything's a foul, everything's a flagrant, and you do see the fingertips on the ball. I agree. So, Although I I do yeah. think that like sometimes like the argument of like we gotta speed the game up is like a little misguided. Sometimes it's not the worst thing in the world to. I mean, you sort of have to. The game has to proceed at different speeds sometimes. Like sometimes yeah. it's nice to be able to have a pause to be able to process what you see. You don't necessarily want it to go fast all the time but i i hear you um but I, what i can't deal with is the competitive advantage you get you could be a coach who has burned probably incorrectly if you don't have any timeouts left for the final minute who then gets three timeouts yeah you know i mean i think there's like a complete like rule issue here maybe the players have to stay at center court or something but like you know this idea that the end of the game takes a long time only you know builds into the the rule book not necessarily being made for the current game and and i yeah. think you know that's something that they there. can look for yeah yeah i mean like without that pause does monty williams have right. time to call that play i mean that that's obviously a huge factor um yeah. but so with booker's night i mean he all those things were happening but he was struggling initially so to me like that starting decision was entirely down to containing booker and if you measure it by the narrow effect of did we contain Booker, I think the answer is yeah. That was a really good adjustment. Here's why. But the problem is, like, there, I thought that there were a lot of trade-offs that you had to accept in order to do that. And those are trade-offs that 
I think are understandable that the Clippers wanted to make them, but I think ultimately those are the trade-offs that cost them the game. So to me, it's like, this is why I love, I think Phoenix is just such a well-balanced team that like you, you do have to make these trade-offs in order to contain their star. Uh, and I think those trade-offs were reflected in one, Paul George took a while to get going because he didn't have this five out spacing to drive. That was a big trade-off that you had. Two is Cameron Payne. You could, you you opened up the possibility of Phoenix kind of using Booker as a decoy and getting Cameron Payne attacking downhill against the drop, against sort of that uh, more conservative style. You gave him the runway. He took advantage. Aiton in the first quarter where if you're playing a big guy and the big guy's now shading to Booker, you're opening up a little bit, little pockets of space for Aiton on the offensive glass or, you know, in like sort of that little pocket of mid kind of, in the paint, but not quite at the basket, he took advantage big time. And I think the big one, too, is if you are playing a big, but you don't have a post-oriented or even like sort of a downhill attacking game, per se, you don't have Kawhi Leonard. You've got a lot of guys who your downhill attacking game is kind of Zubac in the role, and you don't really have that. You're vulnerable now to you've now taken away the one mechanism you use to force the suns in rotation, which is like kind of the danger of five out spacing. And the risk there is if you, if they force you to miss, if they funnel you to the hoop and pressure your shot, you miss a layup. They are now running it down your throat the other way. And it's much harder to maintain that sort of tempo when you're also lacking the ability to kind of put them in rotation. Like the five out spacing weirdly sort of helps is also the, a bit of a tempo controller for the Clippers. So they won the battle, but lost the war. You know, maybe if, you know, some of those guys don't play out of their minds, like they win the war. I mean, they were one point away from winning the war, but that is the trade-off that the Suns force you to make. Yeah. As good teams do, you know, you're constantly making a bargain with how you'd like to approach your scheme. I do wonder, um, I do wonder, we don't know a lot about Chris, Paul, right? That kind of looming over the series and, and the Suns in general. Do you know something I don't? Or it, it really is a situation where he did test positive. We don't know about the vaccination process or whatever. It sounds like he has it, but who knows? And that he's general, genuinely in a 10 to 14 day window. Is that where we're at right now? I, I really am not sure. I, I thought I read a report that he was going to, they're hopeful he was going to play in game three. But, um, Oops. That's interesting. Which, that, and if that's yeah. the case, then that would suggest that he was vaccinated. Right. Because right. then his protocol length is shortened. You know, the one question I was asking throughout game two was like, does do the Clippers do that strategy if Chris Paul right. is playing? Yeah, because because now you've basically opened up the drop the the drop coverage that he's supposed to kill and you've now given him the keys to control tempo. So yeah. if he's playing, I wonder what they do there. You know, do they go back to that? Um it's just such a missed opportunity by the Clippers to not split in the games that Chris Paul's not there. And there's probably, they've done this before. Was this now the third series that they've gone down 0-2? So yeah. it's not new territory. It feels like a, a you know new turf in terms of who they're playing, uh, obviously. But I am very curious to see how they come back. I'm, I'm also assuming Kawhi is done as well, and we don't have much information on, on that either. Right. Um, the series, but, you know, in a way that it feels like the canceling out of the two are you know, superstar two of the superstars in the Clippers case, their best player. And in the Suns case, 
their maybe second best player um, or arguably most valuable being out, you know, it did make these first two games both a lot of fun and also yeah. maybe not games that you learn a whole lot from for game three if the next person, one of those two is back. Um, so, yeah, it could be a tale of two series again as, as play shifts back to Los Angeles. We right. know the Suns can shoot well in, uh, in the Staples Center and don't have much fear over, over that road game. It's, uh, it's not a huge travel lift for them. I'm 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 very interested um, to see how this series plays out, but I also I ultimately don't have um, I don't have a lot of faith in the Clippers winning. I think they can extend it, but I think this is a Sun series to lose. So in in the in in the first round, the adjustment mm-hmm. was downsize play, but two more at the five. In the second round, the adjustment was similar, but it was more I think defensive oriented, where they were just so much more aggressive with when they picked up the ball and they just wouldn't let me, they, they just sort of didn't care as much about Gobert rolling. And that was sort of their, their big fix. And then obviously the five out with Terrence Mann spreading Gobert out. I wonder what the like mechanism that they are able to hit at that really kind of takes the Suns out of what they do to me in a lot of ways, this was that this adjustment, you know, you, the Suns obviously win with their pick-and-roll game and the, all the complexity. They win with pick-and-roll game and their tempo, right? And the pick-and-roll game, all the different ways they, they run into it, all the different variations uh, and the spacing they do to run out of it, the the way that they're able to kind of use the same look to do a lot of different things, uh, the little tricks they do to kind of get players on the move so that you're slightly off-balanced. That's how they win on offense. Um, that's how they do it. And then it's tempo. You know, they they don't get stuck in half-court situations if they can avoid it. They're very good at turning defense into offense, too. I thought it was interesting that, like, kind of at points when they were struggling, maybe in the first quarter, I think there was another moment in the third quarter, they had, like, a quick pitch ahead to Booker. Was Do you remember that play where they threw, like, the campaign drop that pass, like, right in Booker's window? Uh, and they did some other things. I think they are very cognizant of, we need the game to be faster. We can't get stuck in the half court. Um, so that's what they do. And, and now the question then becomes, I mean, what is the Clippers' best mechanism to keep them stuck in the half court? Is it to switch a lot? Is it to, you know, do what they did here? You know, I think in game one, they switched a little bit, a lot, uh, and they got burned by Booker. In game two, they played much more traditionally and physically, and they got burned by everybody else. So, I wonder what they end up doing. I, I wonder if there's a way to merge those two concepts together a little bit more effectively. And then I wonder is like, what's the effect of having Chris Paul there? I mean, again, if you go big and play a center, he's now going to pick you. I mean, he, you've now opened up his ability to pick you apart and pick and roll. So I don't know exactly what that adjustment is. I think it's there. I mean, they, they only lost these games by a combined seven points. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, and again, on a, and and lost this one on a bucket that happened with under one second left. Also, just for the record on that last play, we need to learn the rules again, right? Because isn't it impossible, like even a touch in, the, the point eight should have gone down to point five and not point seven. Anyhow, too many things about the last minute and a half rubbed me the wrong way. But yes, to well, your point, that's an incredible well, they, way to lose a game when you yeah. know that you're very close. To be down 0-2, that's why, you know, back to where we started – what adjustments do you make when you arguably could have won game one? Uh, you lost to a 40-point triple-double from a great player and a really good team effort in a very excited you know, game one at home. So you're not supposed to win that if, as the road team. And then game two, 
as we see in most series, that pattern plays out. It's very close. It's neck and neck. You have the opportunity to win and you lose it. So it's it feels like this Clippers team's resiliency or resilience is going to be, you know, uh, top of mind again. That being said, it's a brutal way to lose a game. And they lost on a play where, in theory, you should have the communication in, in place to, no matter what, have someone at the rim. Was it an amazing pass and a good play call? Sure. Was it still avoidable? Amazing, amazing pass. <laughs> the pass was amazing. Yeah, you've seen the camera angle from behind Crowder. Right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I thought this was interesting on this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting on this pass. If you watch the the reversing, you see like kind of what Demarcus Cousins' positioning is on the inbounder, right? He wasn't protecting so, the rim. <laughs> so it's funny. Like it looks, it is awful based on that. But I I noticed something interesting in the last play, and I don't know if this is what happened. But did you notice like right before the play, Rondo kind of running up from the bench and sort of shouting something? I wonder if Rondo was like looking at that alignment and said they want to pop Devin Booker out to the corner because if you look at like kind of how that play is designed they've cleared they clear Cam Johnson out to the top of the key and so that side is entirely open and that's why the Booker screen is so effective because you can't you have you can't, you can't leave him if you're Nick Batum because if you do he's going to pop open wide open for a jumper like it looked a lot like kind of that shot remember Anthony Davis hit that shot against Denver in the playoffs last yeah. year it would have been yep. something like yep. that so I, I get that Ron, I wonder if I Rondo sort of was saying like that's where they're going and so Cousins I'd have to yeah, watch what so. his position is but he's he's very well protected to stop that pass but not the pass yeah. to the rim like did he sort of I'd love to blame Rondo's brain on that. Um, I also think, I also <laughs> galaxy, think that if, Rondo yeah. galaxy brain. <laughs> exactly. I also think it's like, but even there, like, why do you switch and let, let Zubak fucking run out on, on Booker? Let him do that. He, you can't pump fake Booker's entire, uh, maybe he does the thing where he jumps into the player, in which case we'd have a whole nother, you know, <laughs> bag, right. uh, bucket of worms to a can of worms to open up here. Um, that being said, like with 0.8 seconds, the person who's catching the ball has the opportunity to take a very, very quick shot. That's it. There's no foot movement. There's no pump fake. There's literally nothing that person can do. That's why, in my opinion, no matter what, the call out there is a switch. Um, and, and then you at all costs yeah. protect the rim because the tip is still going to be the most feasible way to score under one second. Right. Um, I well, understand that, the need point. Yeah. yeah. The problem there is, one, Booker jumped over Zubac. He can also jump oh. over Batum. Or Aiton jumped over oh, Zubac. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, Aiton theoretically should be more able to jump over Batum. Yes, but he got the ability to jump over the player at the rim because of the screen. Where the, if switching had been in place, your your ball side of or your basket side of the rim instead of turning around right. to then protect someone behind you. I mean, there's yeah. definitely like NBA ba- or traditional basketball principles at play that were skewed. I think most teams, 99% of the teams, are switching on that play anyhow. Um, because you know that again, the time and score. That being said, I understand you know being caught off guard. I understand if Rondo said something that changed I'm the just, way that they you know. So yeah, I'm just guessing on that one. I just I just that feels yeah. like a Rondo type of thing to do. Yeah, yeah where yeah. he like he know he sees it, he knows what the play is, but he's actually been fooled. I, I could be wrong about that. I think the other one of the other underrated factors of that play is you notice that Beverly is the guy like kind of on the weak side. And I was a little surprised with that because you would think Beverly would guard Booker, right? Yeah. So why – I guess they figured that this was better in case they needed to switch the lob if Batum was there. But, like, imagine if Batum is and Beverly's positioning are switched. You know, Batum might knock that pass away. Beverly yeah, could. Absolutely. 
Well, or Beverly would have Beverly would have low bridged Aiton. He would have just hurt him, <laughs> you know. Because I was just kidding, but uh, which is not what we want. But that's definitely something that Beverly would have yeah, done. Um, you know, win at all costs, right? I mean, he the flop that he had, which when Booker put his hand up on a pretty normal play, where 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 it should be noted that Beverly was reaching in, committing a foul. Okay, while he gets lightly touched on the chin and then goes yeah. down and the hysterics and all that, like. In my opinion, the review process should be able to review flopping as well. Now, I understand, you know, if you're going to let it be so open, you know. Well, now you're saying we should review more things, so I, I don't know well, if that's entirely the answer. If you're already reviewing the severity of a flop or as of the outcome of a flop, where the person, where the review is in nature looking for the harm on the person who isn't, who is in essence faking it, I think that should be open. Yeah, that should be open. Okay. Yeah, but well, anyhow, whatever. I think the Clippers can still get back into this if they can kind of merge the principles of their game two game plan with the personnel of their game one game plan. I just don't know if they can. Because, you know, in game one, one of the the keys to George's big game and really the key to George's big postseason, you know, and obviously, you know, we we said so much and we've totally forgotten that George missed two free throws to set that whole thing up. I'm okay with that. I'm all right with not talking about that, to be honest. Yeah, me too. I just, it's just amazing that like so much happened and like we haven't, I I totally forgot about that. Um, But he made two great plays too before that. The drive to the basket, Euro step was, you know, was a really nice hesitation inside out dribble to the Euro step for the first bucket, then he hit a big jumper. Mm-hmm. I just feel like Paul George is just this snake bitten soul that like not just yeah. from the injury that was awful that you know then led to the way that he was ousted at uh, in Indiana and 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 you know Oklahoma City the way that he broke up with those teams and then now being kind of this this although second great player second very good player on a um a team in the final four of the NBA playoffs is still this much maligned choke job that like no matter what has this and at the end of the day Paul George missed two free throws and I, I feel bad about that um I'm I'm glad we haven't talked about it yet because it, you know truthfully his team was still up one with 0.8 seconds left um so you know right. it's like I, I think that helps a little bit in the, in this but um yeah, yeah the PG's not- just always got something to prove man I don't know how many max guys of his level always have something to prove but he certainly does yeah it, it- it's a like it's sad for the narrative, but I yeah, do think yeah, that strategically one of, again like one of the things strategically that worked in game one of the uh, reasons like Paul George is driving much more to the rim mm. in these playoffs. I think uh, I was on a Clippers podcast and we were talking about that like sort of what is you know that's been a big key to his postseason. It's like hey he's actually getting the free throw line. And to me it's fairly simple. If you have five out spacing, it's a lot easier to get to the basket. And in in his case, like what they were doing is that they looked at it as he's bigger than Booker. He's not bigger than Bridges, but he's bigger than everybody else. So like he can kind of do these sort of like slow drives with that don't force rotation and then like kind of Euro step or power dribble or something and finish. And that was um, those sorts of things get eliminated if you play a center. Like Kawhi Leonard can probably still do all that stuff no matter if there's a center of the game, but Paul George probably needs the five out spacing. Mm-hmm. So to me, like that again, that's a trade off you get, you take. But when he wasn't able to get Booker on the switch last night, he was relatively ineffective until the end of the game. And can you can you make it so that you have more space on the floor? so that he can be more effective and he can continue to kind of pick his matchup the way he, he was in game one. 
I think that's a big key to the series. The other thing, too, is... I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you play five out, you, and I, I know I'm getting a little technical here, so you tell me if I'm being too dry or too, like, sort of in the weeds on this stuff, but I think this is an important point. There, if you're trying to target Devin Booker to make him switch on to Paul George so that George, and you say, like, that's an advantage we want, which, you know, you may believe that is or isn't, but that's very clearly something the Clippers are seeking out. If you play five out, it's very hard for Booker to hedge out and then recover to his man. There's just too many potential passing avenues. So you almost are forced to switch Booker onto him. When you don't play five out, and this is something that the clip, the Suns took a little bit of time to figure out, but eventually did. It's a lot easier to tag, to hedge and recover and not give up that switch because you are more able to use your other three defenders to help on, the other four Clippers because one guy is not because they're not all standing at the three point line. There's like more space to close, mm-hmm. and so if you're the Suns, like now you don't even need to make that switch yeah. to put. And and if you're not making that switch, I mean, Paul George doesn't want to attack Mikael Bridges. He wants to attack Devin Booker and other players. Like that's what he wants to do. He th- and so I think you 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 need to open the floor for him somehow without compromising your defensive game plan that worked in game two. And I, I don't know exactly how you merge those two things together. You know, Marcus Morris's injury is probably a huge, a, a key factor in making that difficult, you know, cause he's got some heft, you know, maybe it was a little odd that Nick Batum only played 16 minutes. Like you probably need to play him more, but then do you put him on Chris Paul, you know, or do you put him on the back line? You know, and it's just a, a lot of interesting questions. I think the Clippers have to answer <laughs> even though they're not that far away from being up to well in the series. Yeah, and that's, that's basketball for you. It's, it's a razor's thin, your razor edge, whatever you want to call it, type sport. So, every little thing is, is important, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you win or lose. And then you have to decide, is that a factor that's worth changing, or, or is it worth doubling down on? I don't envy these coaches. I'll put it that no. way. One thing I can tell you about the entire NBA playoffs in general is I don't envy coaches. No, me neither. I mean, uh, the one thing I really like about this, the Suns and the Clippers, this series, is just that, you know, normally you think about these sorts of things on a more basic level of, like, who guards who, you know, how do we stop this player from doing whatever. But the, both these teams, and I think that's particularly the Suns, like, they just throw so many different things at you at the same time so that you really are – making trails. I mean, it's just really is awesome how the Suns have turned, you know, more so than any other team, because I think this is true of a lot of teams. They just, they are so good at, like, turning the pick and roll into a five-man game, right? It only involves two players, theoretically only involves two players, but it doesn't on the Suns, because they stagger those screens, they shift, they space the floor differently, they get into those plays. They The same look produces so many different potential outcomes, and I think mm-hmm. It, it, it means that you're making these trade-offs on a much more complicated kind of behind-the-scenes level than it, it, it seems. It just adds to the strategy. So I love that. Um, 
does anyone i know there are a few people in the room like does anybody have any any other thoughts they want to share feel free to make a speaker request uh on this series um if not though ben do you want to talk about the lottery um sure yeah i mean like i I want to give you two cents on the sixers and then i would like to talk about the lottery yeah so all right let's give two cents Two cents, because it played out so viciously and and um, immediately on social media. And I think that Ben Simmons is a lightning rod in general and has been basically since he got into the NBA um, for people who for both both sides, for people who know a lot about basketball and for people who know very little about basketball. That's one of the things that makes Ben so special is that if you don't know shit about basketball and you just watch the NBA playoffs casually and happen to, because again, viewership is up, I think 39% year over year, as I saw today. Yeah, a lot although, of people watch I, it. I, I don't know what the number means because it was so down last year down. because of hey, the bubble. It's up though, all right? But it was down last year and it was down because of the cross-seasonality of all the sports and because right. there was yeah, a pandemic yeah. and people had to evaluate what mattered and yada, yada, yada. So Ben Simmons is this guy who, if you don't know much about basketball, you can watch and be like, wow, that NBA player doesn't shoot. And then you Google him or go to his Wikipedia or basketball reference page and you see that he just picked number one overall. And you see how tall he is and how he can average, whatever, close to a triple double. And that's prior to Westbrook um, deciding to make that an obsolete statistic mattered a lot. And so you see, sorry, Mike, that jab, but I know you like that too. Um, And so you see this guy who like, Everyone wants so much more. Oh, my God. Wait, wait. Hold on a second. Yeah. I think we need to invite this person to speak. Is this the oh. Haralaba Vulgaris? Oh, I can't speak right now. I, that, that is the Haralaba Vulgaris. Oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, about that. Yeah, we're gonna need it. We're gonna need a chat yeah. at some point. I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Welcome. It's great to see you, buddy. Uh, yeah, a few things going on with you right now. I can tell. <laughs> um, but Fair wow. Uh, Appreciate right. the listen. Uh, but yes, yeah. yeah. So ben, no, I don't <laughs> even know. Continue with your point. Continue with your yeah. point. This is crazy. This is funny. I know. So basically, I just want to make it known that I don't necessarily agree with all the reactionary takes about Ben, that everything has always been a lot more complicated with him specifically this year with his family, you know, issues with his relation to becoming an elite defensive player. This idea that he somehow doesn't work on his game, but also works incredibly hard to be, to do the hardest thing in basketball, which is to be essentially a a lockdown defender. And when I say hardest, I mean, that's something that takes the most physical effort, um, and is probably the least rewarding facet of, of the game. And yet I agree with a lot of the reactionary takes about what needs to be done for his career. I, I, you just mentioned how five out opens up the game for Paul George to drive. We've seen glimpses of Ben Simmons' career with four shooters on the court, and he's been great. Now, I think he's regressed a little bit in his confidence in the mental part of the game that, that goes mm, with that. Probably, probably more than a little bit at this point. Well, significantly, but at the end of the day, man, there's never been an open lane for him to drive on in any starting five he's played on, on the Sixers. And, you know, Ben being able to drive and kick to a willing and able three-point shooter or someone who's then able to take a dribble and, and make a pull-up or whatever has never been a luxury he's had. The Sixers have, no matter what, no matter who the front office is, have surrounded Ben and Joel with one-dimensional basketball players, either guys who can shoot, but they can't dribble, or they can pass, but they can't shoot. Or they can't play defense, but they can play some offense. And no matter what, when you get down to crunch time and, and Doc has 
I don't even want to get into doc. It's a whole nother podcast probably, but like the ability to the ability for the Hawks to find mismatches every single series and credit to Nate McMillan and credit to their, you know, the kind of the, the abilities of their wing scores um, from Gallinari to Herter to, um, uh, to uh, Bogdanovich, you know, the, the Sixers don't have guys that can do multiple things. They've never had that. And that's well, where I think they, they haven't. They don't. I mean, look, the, the, the Seth Curry is a better version of the same thing that got us banged up with J.J. Redick against the Celtics. Um, searching for his mismatch on offense was the Hawks' offense in two of the four wins in the series. I agree. Although then the question becomes, like, they've tried a lot of different things. And yeah. it, it's not like, like at a certain point, like – this is this is the Ben this is a Ben Simmons problem more so than it is a mix around him. I mean, if this is a guy that has to play a certain way, I mean, when they had Jimmy Butler, he was upset that he was just sort of in the dunker spot. He wanted to play point guard. He wanted to be on the yeah. ball, and so they tried to accommodate that. And this is the result. And yeah. you know, and, like, because part of this is that Mike, like Ben had a wide open dunk. Right, that he passed up, and that was a microcosm of, of that was like the perfect way to encapsulate the issues. Right, this right. man had I mean, a wide open dunk, and he was afraid to do it. And the free throw yeah. shooting hit hit a rock bottom, and his playmaking ceased because he really couldn't put the ball in his hands. And there was like a lot of things, but I don't I don't see this loss as like and and losing in the series. It's embarrassing. I, I saw a report today from one of the Bleacher Report guys. I think it was Joe Dumas who said you know the Sixers front office three days later is still reeling. They're embarrassed that they lost to the Hawks. It shouldn't be embarrassing. There's nothing embarrassing about losing. I mean, it's it's bad. It's a bad loss. But is it embarrassing? No, it was. They were the worst. They were the lesser team in the series. The Hawks arguably had. They were. I mean, they they were. The Hawks outplayed them. They did blow like a 26 point lead in the fourth quarter of of the home game. They lost three times at home. They blew like double digit leads in game four. Like. All true. If this isn't embarrassing, like then I'm not sure what is, and maybe none of these series are embarrassing losses. But I mean, this is about as embarrassing as it gets. Okay, so let me just say this: that maybe the front office can feel embarrassed, maybe players can, but as a fan watching this, when you have the expectation of your team uh, being an NBA championship level team, and you blow a 25 point lead at home, and you the way that Game One came out, where Doc was unprepared for the team they were playing. Flat out, unprepared yeah. for the team they were playing. So, and you lose three games at home in the same series, which for the first time since 1968, a team did that. That was the Sixers in 1968 as well. Um, when you do that, you, as a fan, you re, you re level set. Like you, you, you find what your actual team's ceiling is. And as a Sixers fan watching this series, after game five, I recalibrated everything. You can't blow a 25 point lead at home. You can't do this with Joel essentially on one leg, playing his hardest, but not having, you know, a full tank with Tobias being more or less the guy. And I like Tobias and I think he didn't he wasn't the reason they lost this series, but he missed a lot of important momentum shots in two games in particular in game five and game seven. And he's he's more or less the same guy who he was two years ago, just with more of a free license to score from where he's more comfortable under Doc, probably at the for the sake of spacing and any offensive flow. And for every Sixers fan who bitched and moaned about Brett Brown, all you got to know is the Sixers offense in the last two games, specifically every fourth quarter in the series, but, uh, but really the last two games total, uh, or three games, I should say, games five, six, and seven, was the most stagnant, uninventive, 
an uncreative uh, offense that I've watched um, as as an NBA fan in Philadelphia. And it's, you can all, say it's almost you like it has nothing to do with the coach, and it has to do yeah. with a couple of the players. Well, it certainly does, <laughs> but it also has to do with the, the yeah for sure. But it also has a lot to do with what those players can do in that moment. And in Joel's case, I don't think he had the 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 the, the, the physical lift to fight for the position he needed. And I think that led to him settling for more jump shots. I don't yeah, blame no, Joel at all. Yeah, fair and, enough. And fair but, enough. Yes. Ben and Toby. Absolutely, man. You can't get that from two max guys, specifically from Ben, but also from Toby. It sounds and, like, it yeah. kind of sounds like you're basically just saying like, they, yeah. they showed, they acted embarrassingly. So I didn't expect more from them. Well, I just didn't expect them to beat either of the Bucks or Nets after they really, really struggled and essentially were, you know, in a in in lock and step or, or in a dead heat, I should say, with with the Hawks. Um, so yeah, it made me recalibrate. Good teams don't blow those leads. Good teams run fucking offensive sets. Like we just talked about how the the the, the Suns run a pick and roll, which is in principle a two player play when all five guys are always a part of it. And we just talked about five out offense for the Clippers and how these teams are adjusting. And, I, I saw no adjustments through seven games offensively through the Sixers. I saw some slight defensive tweaks, and defense wasn't the issue. They held trade a five of 26 or whatever in game seven and lost. You know, um, you – And by the way, big factor yeah. in that was Ben Simmons. Yeah, ben, and Ben's defense, this is one of the reasons it's so hard and so complicated to talk about Ben Simmons because Ben is an, is an amazing defender. With the work that he put in on a six foot one, very quick, incredibly intelligent, and all the credit in the world, by the way, to the Hawks and to, to Trey Young. Um, really impressed by him. Really excited to see how you know Drew Holiday matches up with him because um, I think Drew is a great on ball defender and will give him a lot of issues that Ben just can't do as a six foot ten defender. Um, he's kind of like a hybrid of he's long like Matisse, but he's small enough to kind of get around some screens. Yeah. Maxi, Maxi. Yeah, but that's the point is very interesting. I I, yeah. I think it will be very. I'm not. I don't have a good read on it, but I I, I do think either. that. I think um. I think it will be a, a a bit more of a challenging. It will be a challenging series for Trey if the Bucks are able to do what they do. There will be the battlegrounds of that series are interesting. Like I I actually think that series is kind of a toss up, but that's a whole separate. Yeah, me too, and I, I'm I'm really tired of, and I I I feel this about Philadelphia fans too. I thought it was going to be a hard series that the Sixers could win. I think I'm on the record saying like that the Sixers would win the series against the Hawks, but I didn't think it was going to be some cakewalk. And I absolutely, you know, don't think that there's a reason to discredit or count the Hawks out at this point. If you think it's going to be some kind of offensive, uh, uh, they're going to go into some malaise where they aren't able to exploit Brooke Lopez and they're not able to exploit, uh, you know, uh, to a lesser extent, um, the pick and roll offense. Uh, that they they currently run that is you know again keeps keeps everyone um, every mouth is fed right all the shooters get their shots Gallo mm-hmm. gets to come in and play exactly how he wants to play and they're they're rewarded for being the best versions of themselves McMillan's did a great job of that I, I think the Hawks are a tough team and I, again I, I I think that we're learning um, each of those players you know we talk about young players and losing cultures etc but like the Hawks. The Hawks don't – they have a swagger of a team that's been winning for a while. Their expectation of the way they play stems from Trey. John Collins is a, is a interesting player who I still am trying to completely figure out because I've watched him play horribly yeah. and also really, really well. Um, <laughs> so I don't quite know what to get from him. And I think Bogdanovich, hopefully his knee is okay. But he's yeah, shown how much it. of a – 
Yeah, he's a pretty multifaceted player. I just think there's like there's something to be said for the way they play the game, the role they're on. It doesn't it doesn't uh, ring too differently than the way that the the Suns came into the bubble last year. I kept kind of thinking about that parallel. Yeah, I, I think that the difference is that I think the Hawks are really a very different team like this year. They yeah. just have a lot of different players. So like, is it really? Was it really a culture change, or did they just get better players? I don't know, but so yeah. I think one of the, one of the um, I'm curious about how this series will go for sure because I, I mean the battleground of Milwaukee's pick and roll defense versus Trey Young. I mean Philly plays defense the same way, and Trey had moments where he was great and had moments where he really struggled against Philly. I don't think that sure. they, it wasn't like in the New York series where Trey could do what he wanted. I mean to me, one of the no, interesting. No, 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 no. Yeah. One of the interesting keys I think will be, and I know where this game is tonight and I don't want to focus yeah. too much on it, but one of the things is that I think will be interesting is how quickly does Clint Capella roll to the basket? It sounds like a weird thing, but I think he has a tendency. He wants to sort of slip the screen and kind of get the lob, and that's hard to do when you're playing against a team like Milwaukee who wants to play big who has so much size. Really, it was a problem against Atlanta, or Philly when Joel was in the game. When the Hawks are most successful at freeing Young was when Capella, I think, set more solid screens and delayed his role. So yep. what will he do yep. against Milwaukee? I think that's going to be an interesting battleground um, yep. there. Yeah, yeah, so I'm just excited for the series. I'm, I'm still um... – I'm not fully out on the Sixers. I think there's they were in, they were in year one of Moray and year one of Doc, and I still have hopes that they will be a a better team next year. And I just need everyone to just cool down. I need, I need the, the I need the discourse to just relax. When when the neutrals and the casual fans come out with their pitchforks for Ben Simmons, it is probably the thing I hate least about basketball. I'm okay with people who watch him play every fucking game hate, getting upset. Hate, hate most. Yeah, hate most. Yeah, I'm sorry. What, what did I say? You said hate least because I was like, man, you really enjoy that, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> hate the most. Yes. Apologies. I, it's hate the thing most. I hate the most. If you watched 72 Sixers games this year and then every one of their playoff games, by all means, go out there. Tell me how you feel about Ben. Tell me why you feel that so, way. But when, so when what you about, don't, what about, yeah. What, what about what Kyle Newbeck wrote? Where he was, he said, or said that like a divorce is kind of what both sides need right now. Like, I, look, I, read the, I read the piece. Yeah, you know, I'm, I, you know, we're we're friends with Kyle. We we've been a big, you know, it's been on this pod many times. We support Kyle, and no one has their ear closer to the ground than than he does. Like the dude is quite literally one of the most tapped in beat writers, Pompey, uh, Keith Pompey in Philadelphia, and I agree to an extent about that. But I also think that there are real basketball uh, decisions outside of the emotional decisions that it might be best to. Really explore an offseason of Ben being thought of as your backup center who starts the games, who comes in, comes out when, you know, six, five minutes in, plays the entire second unit with a five out, uh, you know, and, and ways to kind of utilize him to maximize what you want on offense because you definitely need his defense. Like if they had won this series, no matter what, they were going to be putting Ben Simmons on either Kevin Durant or on Giannis. OK, there are no and I guarantee that's a guarantee. Now there's. Or I maybe, actually, I wonder. I wonder if they would have put him on Middleton. Actually, just. I was gonna uh, say, and I, I maybe. Although they usually have, but again, part of that depends on Joel's knee. If Joel's knee is okay, then maybe he guards Giannis because he's done that right. In the past. That's what. That's what he's. That's yeah. what I would have expected. But either way, but yeah, that, yeah. he played a okay. very prominent role. Is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. And and that that's the thing. It's like you know, 
there's no easy conversation about Ben's offensive struggles, but there's no way to look over or look past how much easier he made the defensive matchups and scheme on the other side of the ball. And so this is where, again, I can't blame Doc entirely. I've, I watched too many people blame Brett Brown for me to be the person to be like, it's all on Doc. I just think there's definitely some kind of relationship to the players you put around these guys, the way that you put them on the court together uh, that needs to be figured out. And if that's the case, Kyle's, Kyle's right. Then the divorce is necessary. If the case is that they can't necessarily get to this kind of conclusion that works. I, I just, I know Moray is too smart. I, for, for every general manager in the NBA is too smart to trade Simmons right now uh, with his value being where it's at. The way the lottery shook out, and we should spend five minutes or 10 minutes on that real quick. None yeah, of those teams in the, in the top four, top five are trading their pick or anything around that with, you know, for Ben. Although I do think there's a world where Ben to Cleveland is mm. interesting. It's the only team I can think of where like, I wouldn't mind getting Garland and something. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. But the point is, I don't know what Ben's value is and it needs, he needs to come back into next year, bump that value up. If that value goes up, good. It means he's playing well. It means he's a good player on the Sixers and if the value goes up for a trade. Good as well. But it's not going to happen this offseason, and there's no way that uh, just from simply market sake that, that he's going to move. Um, I can't see it happening. Well, I guess we'll we'll see. I mean, like one of the complicating factors in all this is that all the stuff you're saying about like kind of how it makes sense to you, Simmons, are also things that Simmons himself needs to accept about himself. And hundred percent, man. I, you know, these are you know, yeah. These are questions that I think are a lot of people have been asking uh, about Simmons for a long time and. You know, all these ideas are nothing if uh, the player doesn't sort of see the writing on the wall. And if owners say to the, if some owner says, like, well, we're paying this guy $140 million to be uh, a role player. I mean, there's a lot of psychological components in there that, like, I think may make a trade necessary. Um, Let's talk about the lottery. You want to talk about the lottery? Sure, sure. Uh, Happy. Happy, man. Happy for the Pistons. Um, Happy for Detroit. Great. Um, it seems like Cade is the consensus one. We were texting about this last night. You and I both didn't watch much. Usually I watch a lot of college basketball. I didn't this year. Um, I'm sure at one point Ricky will come on our podcast, Ricky O'Donnell, and, and tell us who's, who's going to be uh, pick number one. Cade is only um, working out for the Pistons, which would lead me to believe he will be the number one. But, man, having watched Mobley play in the uh, from USC, they're big in the um, NCAA tournament and watching him play a few times out here. I live in Los Angeles and USC is on TV. I think he's going to be the best player in this draft. What about um, Jalen yeah. Green, the guy, the guy Look, who went to the G League? Love Jalen Green. And both the G League uh, guys who are projected to go in the top five or six or whatever are phenomenal. Um, I, I love Jalen Green's game. He's the one who, when you look at his highlights, you're like, you're a little bit godsmacked. Like you're like, you're kind of blown away by his right. athleticism, talent and body control combo. That being mm-hmm. said, you know, Cade seems to be the one who keeps popping up at the top of all this. And I, I was impressed, you know, in the games I saw, but I can't tell you that I'm looking at him and being like, yeah, I'll take him over the incredibly athletic, agile, and uh, apparently dexterous, uh, not whatever the right word is with a lot of dexterity. Um, What's the right word I'm looking for? God, blank um, is not on today. Um, whatever. I'll, yeah, I'll, I yeah. will say this. I mean, Troy Troy Weaver is not one for groupthink. 
Uh, he was yeah. very instrumental, I believe. Wasn't he instrumental in the Russell Westbrook pick? Uh, when he was with Oklahoma City, they made a lot of selections that I think people wouldn't have made. And I think he said something along the lines of, you know, we're going to do our due diligence. You know, I, I wouldn't put it past him to make a pick that seems unconventional. So I, I don't think it's a slam dunk. Mobley moves, man. And I don't know if he makes sense on their team. I mean, they have Sadiq Bay or Sadiq Bay and, and Jeremy Grant. Like, I don't know if they want another and guy who projects as a big per se, but Isaiah Stewart. Don't forget about Isaiah yeah. Stewart, the big, do the totally big beef man. And they do have Killian Hayes. I mean, that's the thing too, is that like they do have for, they cleared out and have created kind of an interesting young core of players uh, somewhat unconventionally. And they made a lot of moves that I think people were, uh, thought were unpopular. I mean, certainly signing Jeremy Grant was a confusing move at the time, but he's rewarded Weaver's face. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past them to do something unconventional. I, I don't know the prospects very well, um, but, so I don't know. But I, I wouldn't put it past them to do something unconventional. You know, yeah. Toronto getting the fourth pick, kind of interesting because Masai Ujiri's future is, is still sort of up in the air. Does this maybe convince him to stay? Does this maybe nudge him out the door? It's tough to know. Do you keep that pick? What do you do to try? Like, do you, do you add that pick to Van Fleet and Siakam and try to kind of win quickly? Yeah. Or do you now pivot the yeah. other way? I think that, that opens up a lot of interesting options for them. It does. And look, if, if they decide to keep that pick, there's going to be a few options that make uh, a lot of sense. And look, Jalen Suggs could be the uh, you know the heir apparent to your Kyle Lowry. And Suggs is a, a guy who uh, I believe he's Canadian, isn't he? I think he is. I, I don't know, maybe yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, like you know, you saw him at Gonzaga. The guy can really play. Now bringing in a, a you know six foot three guard who, who plays bigger is important when your highly paid off guard is uh, you know five foot ten or whatever. Fit, 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 right. Fit it is. Yeah. Um, but there's other guys, man. Scotty Barnes is an interesting prospect. Jonathan Kaminga is the other G League guy who, mm-hmm. you know, I think he's like a year younger than everyone, too, I want to say. Like he had reclassified. Yeah. I don't so know. Like, I honestly don't know anything yeah. about these guys. So yeah. I, just think, so, I just think it's interesting, like, the position Toronto is in now. Yeah. You know, I, I, just, again, if you're Masai Ujiri, how does this affect your – do you want – does it make you want to stay more, less? Does this have no effect at all? I just yeah. think they they have a lot of interesting paths, and it, it does sound a little bit like Cleveland is itching to do something big, you know, and not just settle for like a, their pick. And I, I wonder, I always get nervous when that is the case with a franchise, but yeah. Yeah, it does feel like they're on the verge. I, I, you must have been happy that Oklahoma City ended up with like the worst possible case scenario for their picks, yeah. losing the Rockets, not getting the Rockets pick. Now poof, it's gone, and then falling to the seventh pick, or sixth pick as far as it could fall. It, you must have been happy to see the lottery gods kind of smite them. I mean, I'm happy. Like, I'm not happy. Do I feel like there's some kind of relationship to like, this is the best you can do in the NBA is, is get the best odds and hope. Yeah. Mm. You know, and that's, that's where the NBA gets weird, especially when you're the, like Oklahoma city is going to be doing this game, right. Hoping that their odds work out for them for the next 10 years, <laughs> whatever, you know, right. I don't even have the, the number in front of me, but certainly the next three drafts, they, they have, you know, all the chips, but they might not win it. Um, and yeah, like, does that set them back? Totally. Does it make them more of a potential trade partner? Yeah. Depends upon, depending upon what Presti wants to do. He has a bajillion assets. He doesn't have the asset he wants right now. What will it take to go from six to three, six to four, depending upon how the, the first couple picks go? 
too much, I'm assuming, but they can do almost anything they want. You know, the leverage points that they have um, are, yeah. are significant. You know, it's just a matter of, again, like, are they a team that wants to get good um, knowing that they can now because the picks are already theirs, right? Like they're already solidified. So right. I don't know. I, Presti's got a big decision to make um, when it comes to staying into that pick. Cause it's not like you're going to get a guy. I mean, you could, again, this is where like, we just don't know, but it's six your odds of getting the guy who's going to change your franchise next to SGA are less likely. That being said, you can draft another complimentary piece for, to build around, you know, um, Childress Alexander. And like, that's, that might be the best way to do this and continue to just suck next year and then shut down everyone again for the next two months because the NBA is totally cool with that now for the last two yeah. months. <laughs> to me, it right to back, me, you know? To me, this, it's more likely now that they continue to yeah. play the long game, which I don't know if that's good. I also am watching Golden State, another interesting spot. They get the seventh pick. Yep, uh, it converted the Timberwolves pick, yeah. You know, and they're a team that obviously we've talked about it before. They've got arguably still the best player in the NBA playing at a high level and they sort of are neither rebuilding nor fully competing around him. They're in this like kind of weird spot and you know, they have to, you would think that they'd have to pick some sort of direction at some point um, with where they want to go. And I just don't know what these two picks do to kind of affect that. You know, can you really add two rookies to that team? I, I would think not. I don't think so. Yeah. So especially I mean, when you basically have a third, you have a third too, basically with wise with Wiseman, you know, after the lost season he had. So I, I don't know. But then at the same time, what are you trading for at this point? I, I guess it's better that they got the two picks and they didn't. But I don't know. Uh, something something smells a little bit there, uh, for sure. Uh, Going to yeah. be interesting, um, yeah. for sure. Any. Anybody got anything they want to add or any final thoughts you have about the state of the league right now? Ben, what are you thinking? No, yeah. No, I just, uh, I, I'm, I'm interested to see um, how game one goes tonight. I mean, we don't want to talk much. We won't talk anymore about it. We can, we can end this, this show, but um, yeah, just curious to see how the Hawks come out of, of, of the Sixers series and same how the Bucks come out of the net series. I mean, two wild seven game series to, that precipitated uh, uh, this series. And I, I, I don't, I don't really have a feel whatsoever for how it's going to go. Um, and game one of the last series, the Hawks came off, came out and blew the doors off the Sixers only to almost lose the game. And, <clears throat> and I don't know if that's how it's going to go tonight, but I'm, I'm more curious about how this series plays out than even the, the Clippers sons. Um, and They're so, both interesting to me. I mean, it's yeah. just—it's nice to have some new blood. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end of the day, that's that's very true. And we're going to get a new champion uh, in some cases here, potentially a first-time champion, and that's very cool. It's very good for the NBA, and it's good for the league. That like tonight's showcase is the Milwaukee Bucks, led by a two-time MVP, versus uh, an Atlanta Hawks team who essentially is bringing you know the, the new names to the party. Um, for the first time, and, I, and I'm, I'm really excited to see how it plays out again. Yeah, um, I'm okay with the Sixers not being in it because I'm still a fan of this this league in a way that this this series intrigues me in a big way. Yeah, now I mean this season is definitely going to go down. I think as a strange one, a one where a lot of anomalies happened when you consider the COVID situation, the games, the injuries. I mean, I, I think a lot of what will happen this year may not be 
kind of translate to the future. I think we can agree with that. Like I, I don't think, I think that's a good thing. I think the league, whether, I mean, the ratings discussion is obviously something that we'll have at another point and it bugs you and whatever, but I don't think it's, I think it's unquestionably true that the league has for a long time kind of ridden only a few different players and they've become too reliant on those players. And if nothing else, well, however the ratings shake out this year, however, whatever, it's good that, it's good to showcase more players. You're now less dependent on certain ones to sell mm-hmm. your product. And to me, that, that can only be a good thing. I just yeah. I, I just think we need to stay in the moment with this year. Like, this has been an odd year. Let's embrace the oddness without sort of – like, I don't, I'm just not sure what translates beyond this year. And I think that's a good thing. It, it should force us to stay in the moment. Like, imagine showcasing the sport of basketball as opposed to the player and the city that he's in. Or just having, I mean, like, frankly, just yeah. having more players to showcase. I think that's really sure, yeah. I mean, I guess that's the point. The point is, like, <laughs> uh, just imagine not having to have the narrative be a, a, about a specific big market, about a specific player whose narrative we know so well that then the iterations of that narrative are just completely beaten to death. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's and, funny, and like, it's cool. yeah, it's funny, like, you, yeah. know, you just see, like, a lot of the discussions, like, well, it's bad for the league that they don't have these stars here. I mean, the answer is probably in the short term, yeah, it's bad for the league. I mean, I, I don't, it sounds like ratings are, are up just because of the comparison yeah. to last yeah. year, which is an anomaly, but it probably isn't great for the league in the short term. But, like, this is not a business, even though it's borrowed, like, a zillion dollars and is in, has, like, a really high credit line. It's not a business that's going to go away in five years. Like, right, it's right. okay to take a – it's good to take a little bit of an L now to make it easier to take multiple Ws in the future. And that's what this season is really all about. Like, you've introduced people to more players who then you can sell later. Like, we've got to be able to think long-term about this. This business is not going to – it's not in peril of going under. Like, we don't have to always be thinking about short-term goals here. So that's a rant. That's that's the thing. Like, it just depends on what you're talking about. Like, yeah, it's probably would be it'd be great if they could have LeBron in the finals every year. But then you never. It's actually you know to bring this whole full circle. It's a very the NBA's got to start thinking like the Phoenix Suns and less like kind of these teams that just narrow their rotations. You know, you got to kind of trust and empower the whole group, not just a select few. And you know, it's going to be good to have more voices, more people, kind of empowered. You know, that's the job of the league. And so, you know, short, you can't, you, you have to be able to accept like short term, these short term numbers, like it's, it's better to have more people involved and that will help you down the road. It sure helped yeah. the Phoenix Suns and you're seeing and, the and results Mike, of that. And Mike, the, the other long term benefit is when a guy like Steph Curry took over the NBA, you get the players like Trey Young. When you get players like Trey Young, you get more players with different types of size and skill and ability to bring the diversity of the beautiful sport uh, to the game, you know, to the league. Right. It shows there's not one way to make this happen. Like, is it great right. that a really traditional, awesome two guard like like Booker is able to showcase what it's like to be like the most sensational version of that? Yes. Is it awesome to see a traditional big in a lot of ways, like DeAndre Ayton, play well? Yeah, but mm-hmm. it's really cool to see someone who's like barely six feet tall, 175 pounds, who has his own uh, rule book in the league. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding with Trey. He, he's using <laughs> he's he's like good players in any sport know how to use the elasticity of subjectivity, and they're both. And Trey is amazing at that. Just like yeah, any he, good wide receiver or defensive back in the NFL knows the pass interference rules, you know, and how to play the game. So. 
it's, it's just it's just cool. And there'll be more players who are smaller with more range right. who are, you know, I, I look at Trey as the, he is, to me, he's not Steph Curry. He is the next iteration of Steve Nash. That's what I see in Trey. That's um, something and, that I, I believe Christian Winfield was wrote, who did, did some reporting on this, like way back when he was working with SVN and cool. talking to Trey and just about like, that's how Trey saw himself too. So interesting. You know, it's, it's, uh, well, I mean, it's just the, the, the Curry thing is like, I mean, and we really should wrap this up, but like the, yeah, the Curry on. discussion is like, Curry became this writing bonanza, like out of nowhere. <laughs> like, it's not like you couldn't script Steph Curry's rise in the NBA. Like, there's no way to, it's better to just sort of let these things happen, let these things breathe. You know, if you, if you had tried to script the next Steph Curry, the next Jordan, the next LeBron, like, you miss, you never would have had Steph Curry in the first place. Like nobody thought he would rise like this. Like it, it had to happen. You yeah, know, yeah. if the, the, this, uh, I'm writing this book chapter now on, uh, and this is the last thing right now. I'm like kind of in the stage of the book where I'm writing about kind of the, the rise and why everyone plays fast now. And it just reminds me of this story that Daryl Morey once told about at Sloan about Jeff Van Gundy and that early on in this Rockets tenure, Maury sort of took on himself to like basically track the effectiveness of all of Van Gundy's play calls. Right. It was like a collaborative project. They're just sort of, he, he told the story of Sloan a number of years ago. And I just, I thought it was like a really interesting thing. And he was tracking, you know, Hey, we run this, uh, we run out of horns. We run like sort of this alignment, that alignment. And he noticed, he, he told the story, he noticed that like the play that was most successful, like didn't have a name. And he asked Van Gundy, hey, what's that play called? And he said, oh, that's just random. That's why we, like, kind of failed to do our actual play, and we just sort of ad-lib a screen. And and, and Terrell was like, wait a minute, so you're telling me that, like, the play we don't draw up is the one that is the most effective? That feels like that's a lesson <laughs> for us yeah. and for everyone. <laughs> um, and I think that the NBA is, is worth it's good to follow that playbook, too, for the NBA. Like, the best stories are the ones you can't script the best players that the most marketable players are the ones who come out of nowhere and you just sort of have to let it breathe, let it happen and stop trying to engineer something in advance. Let the the theater, let, let the theater play out, let, Mm -hmm. let the show play like, you know, without getting to your assumptions of what the entire audience wants to see, let the actual theatrical production play. And I think that's, you know, you were texting me this last night, but that's, that's, that is what made the Clippers Suns game one of the things that made it so great. It's just unbelievably unpredictable. This just like amazing show happening in front of you, which has a million twists and turns. And, and, and that's what these playoffs have been. That's what the league should be embracing is that this isn't something, some narrative you could have written ahead of time. You, you, you know, that this is something we stay tuned to see what comes next. Absolutely. As the, uh, the great philosopher Ted Theodore Lasso once said, be curious, not judgmental. Uh, that's been this week's limited upside podcast. Thank you, Ben, for joining us. Thank you for everybody who joined in the who kind of was around here with us while we were doing it. This will be on the podcast feed. Hey, Ben, what do you think about Twitter Spaces tonight? I think I'm going to do a Twitter Spaces tonight. You want to jump on? I'll hop in. I'll hop in. All right, excellent. We'll, we'll talk then. Take care.